0: This message is brought to you by Mill City Church in Lowell, Massachusetts. For more information, please visit millcitychurch.net. Are you ready to study God's Word together this morning? Turn to the book of Exodus, chapter 5. It's hard to believe, but we're already in chapter 5. Now, as you're turning there, if you'll remember where we left Moses, his brother Aaron, and the people of God in chapter 4, is we left them in a place of obedience and belief, thanksgiving and worship in response to God and his promises to them. And that brings us to chapter 5 this morning. But as we're going to see in our message that taking God at his word... And when following him obediently, things don't always work out the way we thought they would. And rather than life getting instantaneously better in in obeying God's word, sometimes things actually worsen. As we're going to see in this morning's text, there will be times in the life of the believer That you actually think God is against you, that he's failing you, that he's not living up to his promises to you, even when you are drawing near to him and obeying him faithfully. But when things do get worse, rather than getting better, I want you to see this morning in today's text that we have to guard ourselves from responding the way the Israelites did. So if you've ever thought that God is against you or that he's failing you or that he's just not simply coming through for you, even when you are living obediently and drawing near to him, then this morning's message is for you. And even if you're one of those minority of people who perhaps that hasn't been your circumstance, Your circumstances before and you haven't felt those feelings before, this morning's message is for you too because even though you haven't experienced those feelings up until now, it is quite likely if you walk with Jesus for any length of time, you might get to those places at some point in your life sooner or later. So regardless, this morning's passage, I pray, will prove extremely relevant to us all because as we read the experiences of our spiritual ancestors of old, I hope we also learn some crucial reminders when, God feel, when it feels like God is failing us today. So pick up in your notes today, pick, take out your worship guides, your listening guides, and let's engage with the scriptures today so the scriptures may also engage with us. We're gonna see five crucial reminders when you feel like God is failing you. In those moments when we feel like God is not coming through on his promises, what we're going to, need to do is we're going to need to resist and remember. And we're going to see this through the text this morning. We're going to need to resist and remember. Okay, here's number one. We need to resist thinking that God is uninvolved in real people's circumstances. Now, this is a crucial reminder for us. Because when disappointment falls or calamity strikes us, you're going to be so tempted to think that somehow God just isn't interested in average, ordinary people like you. And, you. and you might feel that God is distant or uninvolved, or maybe even that He simply doesn't care at all. In chapter 6, we're actually going to start in chapter 6 this morning, when you look at verses 14 through 25 it seems like a real boring paragraph of scripture because in verses 14 through 25 of chapter 6 we come to one of those infamous old testament genealogies have you ever been there in your reading plan and you get to a a genealogy in the old testament and you just think well great I guess I'll have to wait until tomorrow to get a fresh word from God (laughs) this is just reading someone's family tree But what I want you to see is that genealogies, as mindless as they might seem, they are not non-applicable set of verses that mean nothing at all to us. They actually can be real edifying to us. When we're reading this, it's not like we're just trying to get spiritual advice from Ancestry.com. Like There really is something for us to learn. And at a very simple level, genealogies remind us That God actually intervened and worked in the lives of real people at real moments in redemptive history and God knew their names. They remind us that God is not distant, that he's not uninvolved and that if he knew their names, then he knows our names too. And if he worked in their circumstances, we can also trust him to intervene and work in the midst of our lives today. But there's a deeper truth here for you and me, too. If you look at Exodus chapter 6, verses 14 through 25, 25 recount the lineage or the family tree of Moses. But then in verse 26, it says, These are the Aaron and Moses, to whom the Lord said, Bring out the people of Israel from the land of Egypt by their hosts. It was they who spoke to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, about bringing out the people of Israel from Egypt, this Moses and this Aaron. Now, if a closer look at Moses' family tree reveals Moses' averageness. I'm not necessarily sure that that's an actual word, but it's going to be this morning, in this morning's message, okay? Moses was simply an average man. Remember Jacob. Jacob had 12 sons, Reuben being the firstborn. And in Israel's culture, the firstborn was the son of importance, the one who held the inheritance rights. But in this particular genealogy in chapter 6, We're only given three of Jacob's 12 sons, and they are Reuben, Simeon, and Levi. Moses was not the son of Reuben, the firstborn. The lineage here tells us that he was actually the son of Levi. But even with his non-firstborn lineage, Moses would nonetheless be the one God chose to raise up to be the liberator for God's people. God chose to use Moses anyway. There's more we could say here, but don't miss the bigger point. And I'll bridge last week's sermon to this week's sermon. God calls ordinary, average people to carry out his extraordinary plans. And when observing Moses' life, we might even say that God uses nobody's to do extraordinary things in his kingdom. We could even think about the 12 disciples of Jesus at this point. There was nothing spectacular about any of those men, but he chose them and entrusted his kingdom to them. My friend Chuck Lawless has written a great little devotional book called Nobodies for Jesus. I really like that. I love that title, Nobodies for Jesus, because that's essentially all any one of us is. Maybe you've heard the catchy little spoken word that I'm just a nobody telling everybody about a somebody who will save anybody. And so when disappointment calls or calamity strikes, we have to resist thinking that we're simply a nobody God doesn't care about. It may be true that in the grand scheme of things, compared to God, each and every one of us is a nobody But we're nobodies whom God calls by name, knows by name, and cares very deeply about, anyways. Resist thinking that God is uninvolved in average, real people's circumstances. All right, so now a second crucial reminder when you feel like God isn't coming through for you. Here it is. Remember that obeying God doesn't always make things easier. Remember that obeying God doesn't always make things easier. Now, we're going to go back to the beginning of this section, and we're going to start at the beginning of chapter 5, the actual body of today's text. Now, this is the first time that Moses is going to confront Pharaoh on behalf of God and God's people, demanding that Pharaoh release God's people from their Egyptian slavery. Now what I want to do is I want to actually read the entire section here. I'm going to read verses 1 through 18. You follow along in your copy of God's word or follow along on the screens behind me as I read it out loud. It says afterward Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh thus says the Lord the God of Israel let my people go that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I don't know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. Then they said, The God of the Hebrews has met with us. Please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God, lest he fall upon us with pestilence or with sword. But the king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why do you take the people away from their work? Get back to your burdens. And Pharaoh said, Behold, the people of the land are now many, and you make them rest from their burdens. The same day, Pharaoh commanded the taskmasters of the people and their foremen, you shall no longer give the people straw to make bricks as in the past. Let them go and gather straw for themselves. But the number of bricks that they made in the past, you shall impose on them. You shall by no means reduce it, for they are idle. Therefore, they cry, let us go and offer sacrifice to our God. Let heavier work be laid on the men, that they may labor at it and pay no regard to lying words. So the taskmasters and the foreman of the people went out and said to the people, Thus says Pharaoh, I will not give you straw. Go and get your straw yourselves wherever you can find it, but your work will not be reduced in the least. So the people were scattered throughout all the land of Egypt to gather stubble for straw. The taskmasters were urgent, saying, Complete your work, your daily task each day, and when there were, as when there were straw." And the foreman of the people of Israel, whom Pharaoh's taskmasters had set over them, were beaten and were asked, Why have you not done all your task of making bricks today and yesterday as in the past? Then the foreman of the people of Israel came and cried to Pharaoh, Why do you treat your servants like this? No straw is given to your servants, yet they say to us, Make bricks. And behold, your servants are beaten, but the fault is in your own people. But he said, You were idle. You are idle. That is why you say, let us go and sacrifice to the Lord. Go now and work. No straw will be given you, but you must still deliver the same number of bricks. What's happening at the beginning of chapter 5? Moses and Aaron go to Pharaoh and they say in verse 1, Thus says the Lord. Moses and Aaron are obeying God. They're simply doing what God commanded them to do. But does it go well? Not exactly. Do things get easier? Absolutely not. Things actually got much, much more difficult. And what appears to be an act of spite Pharaoh makes the Israelites oppression even more oppressive. In verse 7, he says, You shall no longer give the people straw to make bricks as in the past. Let them go and gather straw for themselves. Now, according to scholars, at this time, chopped straw mixed in with the clay made the bricks more pliable and stronger. And it did that first by binding the clay together and then by decaying and and releasing a humic acid very similar to glutamic acid today. And up until this point, the Egyptian taskmasters gathered the straw for the brickmakers. It wasn't that nice of the oppressive Egyptians, right? But now, as punishment for Moses and Aaron's plea, Pharaoh commanded the taskmasters to stop gathering the straw for them. Make them get their own straw, but don't relax their daily brick quota. In reality, what's happening here is the Israelite slaves now faced a much heavier burden, not because of their obedience to God, but for Moses and Aaron's obedience to God. What do we make of this? Now, I recognize that our context significantly differs from the Israelite circumstances. However, the spiritual principle here translates across generations, across time and geography. And here it is again. Obeying God, brothers and sisters, does not always make things easier. Sometimes obedience actually makes things much more difficult. Somewhere along the way, like this is so important for us to grasp this morning, because somewhere along the way, we Christians were taught to believe that following God or obeying God always means that things will be easy. Or that somehow faithfulness to God in God's spiritual algebraic equation, that faithfulness to God automatically equals peace and comfort but the scriptures here show us otherwise and the scriptures are themselves true enough for us but also consider just everyday life circumstances i think about the student in here this morning And you so want to follow Jesus and you want to honor Jesus and be obedient to him in your life. And so on campus, you withdraw from certain activities or gatherings. And as a result, by non-Christians, you might be labeled a religious fanatic or a holy roller. Or perhaps you're a single man or a single woman in the room and you have resolved in your heart to be content in your non-marital status at this point in time. And honor Jesus with your singleness. But your parents and your family members or your friends are constantly pressuring you to be in a relationship or even pressuring you to be married. Or perhaps you've become a Christian recently and you're the only Christian in your family. But rather than being seen as a good thing by your family, your faith is seen as a threat. And they sneer at you because of it. Or I think about instances where a couple sell everything they own here in the States and they pack up their goods and their family and they move overseas to make Jesus known where he's never been known before. They arrive on the field. Things are going well. And then one of them becomes deathly ill and even loses their life. Brothers and sisters, we need this truth to be concretized in our hearts this morning. Obeying Jesus doesn't always mean that calamity will follow, definitely. But oftentimes, obedience makes things more difficult for us rather than easier for us. And in a strange way, I want you to follow my logic here, in a strange way, that reality should give you solace in the midst of the hardship you experience. Because when you feel the disappointment, or when you face the pain in front of you, while at the same time obeying Jesus, the reality should dawn upon us, I'm not the first person where this seemingly incongruity has existed. It's what happened in the Old Testament. It's what happened to God's people in the New Testament. It's happened through church history. So what I'm experiencing is not abnormal. And isn't that one of the things that we most need? When we're facing circumstances that we've never faced before, we just need to know that we're not alone. We need to know that someone else has gone through what we are going through. So sometimes obeying Jesus not only means hardship will follow, but sometimes it's actually the obedience itself that actually induces the hardship, like here in Exodus chapter 5. So remember that truth when you feel like God isn't coming through for you. Now let's keep reading in the text. Pick pick up with me in verse 19. So the foremen of the people of Israel saw that they were in trouble when they said, you shall by no means reduce your number of bricks, your daily task each day. And so then they leave and verse 20 says, they met Moses and Aaron who were waiting for them as they came out from Pharaoh and they said to them, the Lord look on you and judge because you have made us stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. In other words, Moses, this is all your fault. If it weren't for you, Moses, we wouldn't be experiencing this extra adversity at all. We'd still be in slavery, yes, but at least it wouldn't be as bad. Now, on the surface, humanly speaking, the foreman might have had a point. The problem, though, is that they missed the bigger picture. They miss the bigger picture, and that leads me to a third crucial reminder we need to remember when we think God isn't coming through for us. We've got to resist blaming others when life gets harder. We've got to resist blaming others when life gets harder. Now, isn't it just like human beings to look for someone to blame when things don't go our way? I mean I think, I really think in essence that's just at the nature of our at the core of our fallen sin nature. It is in our nature to simply blame others. It's almost a part of our catharsis, right? Is the seemingly peace, and mind, the peace of mind of just knowing who's responsible for the plight we're facing. But what seems to be right in the moment or what makes sense in the moment might not be most helpful in the grander scheme of things. The reason why? We don't always have the information. We don't always know all the behind the scenes machinations in which God is working. We don't always see the bigger picture. I see this all the time as a pastor. So many times as we lead the precious members of our flock, as as folks experience adversity or different problems in their life, they too look for someone to blame. And and, and oftentimes, uh, those of us in leadership are the easy targets. You see, in our adversity, we might be tempted to think if if you had just given me better advice or you if you had offered more classes or more counseling or if you just preached a few more sermons on my specific challenges or if you had just spent a little bit more time with me, I wouldn't be facing what I'm facing or at least it wouldn't be as tough. Or possibly even, I did what you told me to do and things got harder. It didn't get easier. Now in no way... This morning, do I want to suggest that pastors are perfect? I assure you, we are not. Nor do I want to suggest that we are always right, because I assure you, we are not. And neither was Moses. But what I do want you to understand this morning, and see here from the text... Is that we need to resist giving into the temptation to immediately blame the ones around us for our plight when they may actually be the ones whom God has put before you to actually love and serve you and lead you to a common good. Make no mistake about it, the Israelites' circumstances were bad and they were made worse by Moses' actions, no doubt. But don't forget that Moses was simply doing for the people what God had commanded him. He simply told Pharaoh, thus says the Lord. And the Israelite foreman didn't have all the information. And sometimes neither do we. There was a bigger picture behind the scenes that people didn't know yet. And oftentimes in the midst of our calamity, there's a bigger picture of God is working in our lives that we don't yet know as well. And so as a result, I want you to see the next crucial reminder that we need to remember when facing adversity and thinking God is against us. Remember that God is working a bigger plan than you can currently see. As we continue reading in the text, the foremen weren't the only ones doing some blaming. Moses had some blaming to do on his own. You see, the foremen blamed Moses for their adversity. Moses actually blamed God. Look with me in verse 22. Then Moses turned to the Lord and said, O Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me for since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name he has done evil to this people and you have not delivered your people at all do you feel the weight here this is a temptation of ours too people blame us and so we look for people to blame we look for someone to blame and that's what Moses did and it led him to actually blame God Moses is shaking his fists at God And then what does God do in response? Well, if I were Moses, I I might have just struck him right there and just zapped him, like, there, zap. Shake your fist at me, mere human, right? We can all thank God today that Chris James isn't God, Um, especially Moses in this circumstance. But what does God actually do, though? He doesn't zap him. He's patient with him. And starting in verse 1, he says, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand he will send them out, and with a strong hand he will drive them out of, this land, out of his land. And God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty, but by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel, from the, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. Here it is, in verses six through eight. Say therefore to the people of Israel, "I am the Lord." the Lord. This is beautiful. Over and over again in verses six through eight, God says, I will do the, these things. Not I might, not it could be, I will. And he swears to him. And who does he swear by? He swears by himself, for there's no one greater for God to swear by. He's staking his entire name on what he will do for his people. And in doing so, essentially, here's what God does. When God's people and Moses turn and blame him for their plight, what God does is he does two things. Number one, he reminds them who he is. And number two, he reminds them what he's going to do. Friends, these are God's greatest gifts to us when we don't know what's going on. When we feel like God is not coming through for us, when we feel like God has abandoned us, what we need most is not an explanation. What we need most is not an answer. What we need most is to be reminded of who God is and what He's promised to do on our behalf. God is working a much bigger plan than you or I can see in the midst of our uncertainty. <clears throat> Corey ten Boom was a Dutch watchmaker who, along with her family, helped a number of Jews to escape the Nazi Holocaust during World War II. And consequently, she was arrested and sent to a concentration camp. And she recounts the story of her family's efforts in her book, a hiding place, and to illustrate the contrast between our perspective and god's perspective in the middle of our trials on earth, Corey weaved a beautiful tapestry of a crown. Here is the the front side of that tapestry, and she used this tapestry as an object lesson of god's perspective and our perspective in the midst of our trials on the front we see this beautiful picture of a crown. A crown that God himself has promised to those of us who are in Christ Jesus. But on the back, however, it simply appears to be a pile of untethered yarn making no sense at all. In our trials, all you and I can see is the chaos. Chaos the seeming disjointed nature of everything that we experience and what we read in God's Word. We can't see the beautiful tapestry on the other side. But God is weaving together for us this beautiful tapestry through all of those untethered pile of threads. But remember, there's no beautiful crown without the disarray of yarn on the back. Corey also wrote a beautiful poem to accompany the visual. She wrote, My life is but a weaving between my God and me. I cannot choose the colors he weaveth steadily. Oft times he weaveth sorrow and I in foolish pride. Forget he sees the upper and I the underside. Not till the loom is silent and the shuttles cease to fly will God unroll the canvas and reveal the reason Why? The dark threads are as needful in the weaver's skillful hand as the threads of gold and silver in the pattern he has planned. He knows, he loves, he cares, nothing this truth can dim. He gives the very best to those who leave the choice to him. Isn't that good? It's beautiful. It's such a beautiful reminder of what our God is doing in the midst of our lives. And in verses 6-8, through God again promised Moses what he was going to do for them. I want to show you this quickly, okay? Beginning in verse 6, going through verse 8, God promises the people four things. Four big things that he is going to do on their behalf. See them. In verse 6, God promises them liberation from slavery. He says, I am the Lord. I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them. And then in verse 7, God promises them a second, uh, gives them a second promise, redemption. He says, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. Now, it's important for us to stop here for just a second because not only did God promise them redemption, he himself Would be the Redeemer. Now, in Hebrew, the word basically means purchasing, but it goes deeper than that. You see, in Hebrew culture, the word communicated a privilege or duty of a close relative. The Redeemer was a member of the extended family and acted to protect a member of the family in moments of hardship. As Christopher Wright puts it, the redeemer was both the family protector, ultimately a family champion. For example, if a kinsman fell into debt and was forced to sell their land, then the better off kinsman would step in and purchase that land in order to keep it in the family. Or if a man died without a son to inherit his name and the property, Then a kinsman redeemer would step in and marry his brother's uh, widow and seek to produce an heir. You might want to read the book of Ruth if you think about Boaz and Ruth in the Old Testament book of Ruth. But here in this passage, what God is doing is he's using that, that imagery, he's using that language to show that he himself is the ultimate kinsman redeemer. God is the ultimate family protector he is our, ultimately, our ultimate family champion. And God promises them liberation. He promises them redemption. And then in verse 7, he also promises them adoption. He says, I will take you to be my people in verse 7. And I will be your God. And you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. And then in verse 8, he promises them an inheritance. The land. He says, I will bring you into the land. Now, here's what's significant. All four of these promises, liberation, redemption, adoption, inheritance, all four of those promises that God gave the Israelites here, Jesus Christ would ultimately provide for anyone who responds to his gospel today and there is a brief paragraph in the book of galatians chapter 4 that promises and underscores all four of these promises to us through jesus's gospel here it is and as as i read this you you might want to just be looking at this and picking out these four promises right beginning in verse 4 of galatians 4 the bible says but when the fullness of time had come liberation from slavery, he makes us an heir because he's going to give us an inheritance one day in heaven when we see him face to face. And so brothers and sisters, I know that there are times that life just hurts. That there are times in our lives that just like when the foreman looks at Moses and yells in his face and says, you've made us stink in the sight of the Egyptians, that there are times when our circumstances and our lives, they just stink, if we're honest. And I recognize that in an audience this size and the size of the audience watching online, that it is quite likely that there, are, there is a someone or someone's You're experiencing that real hurt and that real disappointment, that real pain today. And you feel like God just isn't coming through for you. That he's forgotten you. That he's not involved. He's not living up to his promises that he's given to you. But if you're there, remember who Jesus is and remember what Jesus has already given to you and promised to give you in the future. He is your Redeemer. He has already rescued you from the slavery of your sin. He has been your protector and will be today. He has adopted you into his family and you're still a part of that family today. And one day he has promised you an inheritance where when you see him face to face, he will turn the tapestry over to the other side and you will see the beautiful tapestry that he was weaving through all of those seemingly untethered yarn pieces of yarn below. That's our promise in Christ Jesus this morning. God is weaving a much bigger plan for you and for me than we can currently see. And that leads us to the fifth and final reminder I want you to see from this morning's text. When you feel like God's not coming through for you, resist having a short memory of God's promises. Resist having a short memory of God's promises. What is remarkable... As you make your way through the book of Exodus, is how many times the people hear God's promises, bow down in worship, and then immediately forget when the going gets tough. Let's just trace it through these two chapters. All right, I'm going to begin at the end of chapter four. Remember? Verse 30. Aaron spoke all the words that the Lord had spoken to Moses and did the signs in the sight of the people. And what was their response? And the people believed. And when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that he had see, seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshipped. Then, after the foreman angrily confronted Moses and Aaron, Moses blamed God, right? In chapter 5, we've already, we already saw that. But then again, after God reaffirmed his promises to Moses, in chapter 6, pick up with me in verse 9 and look at the response. Moses spoke thus to the people of Israel, but they did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. And so afterwards, in verses 10 and following, the Lord said to Moses, go in Tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But Moses said to the Lord, Behold, the people of Israel have not listened to me. How then shall Pharaoh listen to me? For I have uncircumcised lips. But the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron and gave them a charge about the people of Israel and about Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to bring the people of Israel out of the land. fast forward down to verse 28. After all has been said and done here, and how many times God has reaffirmed his covenant, how many times he's reassured him that he's going to be with Moses. On the day when the Lord spoke to Moses in the land of Egypt, verse 28 says, the Lord said to Moses, I am the Lord. Tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, all that I say to you. God is not relaxing his command. But Moses said to the Lord, behold, I am uncircumcised lips, How will Pharaoh listen to me? If you want to do a really interesting study of the book of Exodus thus far, if you want to read this in your quiet time with God this week, simply read, just stick with the first six chapters we've read thus far. Go through and circle all the times it says, but Moses. It's over and over and over Again, The Israelites were so forgetful. Moses was so forgetful of God's promises. Their memories were so short. But how forgetful are we? Right? I mean, how often do you and I have short memories of God's promises and provision to us. We are not unlike the Israelites. As a matter of fact, we are very much like the Israelites. When things are going well, thanksgiving and worship are on our tongues. We say, praise the Lord, or God is so good We even counsel our loved ones with those words as they struggle or as they doubt. But just let an unexpected trial or just let a little discomfort come our way, and worship turns to cursing, and thanksgiving morphs into blame. We're like children. We're like children who on their birthday shower their parents with love, affection, and thanksgiving because you gave them what they had always wanted. But then just a few days later, they stomp their feet protesting, you never give me what I want because you said no in the moment, right in the heat of the moment, right? But friends, these things ought not be so. If God is to be praised on the mountaintop, then he must also be praised in the valley below. If we say God is good when all is seemingly well, then we must be ready to say God is good when it seems like everything is crumbling out from under our feet. And if he is to receive your praise and your blessing when he's seemingly giving you everything you want, then we've got to be ready to give him praise when it doesn't seem like he's giving us what we want. But don't miss this truth this morning. God's worth is not defined by the perceived worth Of your circumstances. God's worth must not be defined by the perceived worth of your circumstances. God is to be worshiped both in peacetime and in wartime. He is to be trusted in comfort and in tragedy. We must resist having a short memory of God's promises. Here's why, brothers and sisters. Here's why. Fast forward thousands of years to our circumstances today, and here's what we have. All of the promises of God in the Old Testament, from Genesis all the way to Malachi, are pointing towards the greater Moses. It's pointing towards the time when Jesus Christ, God's own Son, His promised Messiah, would enter into our human existence. He would actually enter into the the mess of untethered yarn in the chaos of our lives, it just didn't make sense. And through his perfect life and through his heinous death, but through his resurrection, here's what the Bible says in 2 Corinthians chapter 1. In 2 Corinthians 1, verse 20, the Bible tells us that all the promises of God find their yes in Jesus. That is why it is through him, Paul says, that we utter our amen to God for his glory. Brothers and sisters, in this life, you will have trials. You will have hardships. And yes, though it is uncomfortable, and from a human standpoint, we don't like this one bit, but the Bible tells us here in Exodus 5 and 6 that sometimes hardship is going to even be induced by our obedience to Jesus. That's just simply the life he's written for us as followers in this sinful world. But friend, this is our hope this morning. Is that no matter how tangled of a mess our lives seem to be. What our God is doing is weaving all of those threads into a beautiful tapestry that is your life. And when you get to heaven and you see Jesus face to face, he will turn that tapestry over and say, look at what I was doing. You couldn't see it in the moment. You didn't have the eyes to see it. But I saw it all along. And that's our hope. Every single thing that we face here, our God is working together for the good of those who trust him. For those who have their faith in him. And that brings me down to a final point that I want to just challenge us with. The promises that I've laid out this morning, the promises we've seen in the scriptures, they are yours in Christ Jesus. God will work everything in your life for your good if you are in Christ. But if you're not in Christ Jesus, that promise doesn't belong to you yet. Just as we summed up last week. If you're not in Christ Jesus, this promise doesn't belong to you yet yet. But can I just say from my heart, I so want it to belong to you today. And it can belong to you if you will simply just let loose of your life and turn the reins of your life over to your kinsman redeemer. And let him be your champion. Let him be your protector. Let him fight on your behalf. And you turn your life over to him. And every promise we've looked at in scripture today is yours in Christ Jesus. Father, I pray for my people this morning. I pray that your truth would be applied to our hearts in direct proportion to our need. And I simply pray this today, Father. We confess to you that we are too quick to blame you when things don't go our way. And Father, we are too quick to run away and to not trust when life is uncomfortable. Instead, Father, I pray today that you would draw us and pull us towards yourself. And rather than running away from you when life gets tough, that we would run towards you, jumping in your arms. For, Father, it is only in the arms of Jesus that life will ever make sense. And though it won't completely make sense on this side of heaven, when we see you face to face, if our lives are in Christ, Lord, we will talk it over and you will show us the beautiful masterpiece you were weaving all along. We simply pray today, may it be so, in Jesus' name, amen.